Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome over to Product Today. I'm here with Matt Fleckenstein, an old friend of mine who's the head of innovation marketing in the Azure group at Microsoft. So Matt, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Yeah, sure. Hey, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me. And I always love being part of these product uh, podcasts. So I'm one of those lovers of of product, like you said. Look, in terms of of what I'm doing right now, I'm at Microsoft. I came back a couple of years ago after having spent some time there earlier. And I'm really kind of uh, driving development of a bunch of up-and-coming technologies, almost entrepreneurial ventures within Azure um, to try to grow new businesses. And, you know, it aligns, I think, with a lot of what I've done in my career. I've kind of bounced back and forth between large companies and doing more entrepreneurial stuff in startups with uh, entrepreneurial stuff in in large companies. Um, Number of true startups under my belt. Did some entrepreneurial stuff at Microsoft uh, back in the mid-2000s when we were shifting office from, you know, perpetual software to Office 365 and, and, and a SaaS model, but then also did some at Salesforce as well. So have always been in and around how do you apply disruptive technologies and business models into markets to, um, you know, gain share and build new businesses, some in startups, uh, some in, in big companies, and certainly what I'm doing now at Microsoft. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about how you first got into product management. Talk to me about getting involved in product. I, now, I know your education liberal arts, University of Pittsburgh, you know, yeah. now working for one of the most tech tech companies in the world, right? So yeah. talk to uh, me yeah. about it, that transition into product from your original, you know, education. Yeah, I always love talking about this. And I think actually people always love hearing it because I think if you're not a true technical person coming out of school, right, there's always questions of how do you get into this? And, you know, my honest answer is it's one of these things where I feel like it just kind of happened, but there's a common thread that I've kind of uh, noticed as I've gone through my career. So I graduated, as you said, liberal arts, right? Undergraduate degree in English, uh, where all product, great product uh, managers come from. And, you know, basically took a job as a technical writer at a market research firm back in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it just so happened that when I took that job as the technical writer, you know, I had a lot of, I had a, a minor in biology. And so I had a lot of analytical skills as well. And I quickly became an analyst at that research firm. And it was at the time when the internet bubble was really kind of happening. And so a lot of the work I got to do was around new product development types of things and helping companies to do concept testing for new products. And then ultimately, you know, do message testing and naming research and whatnot to kind of take them to market if they seemed viable. And so inevitably I got involved in a bunch of different products, everything from, um, you know, I got to work on the design and launch of Purell hand sanitizer, which of course we're all using a ton today, um, to things like, you know, in the fast food markets um, and eventually into a lot of technology. And then I ended up going from there into an early stage entity in Pittsburgh, which was kind of a, a publicly funded venture capital firm, where I got to go help a lot of different tech companies figure out what today we would essentially call product market fit, you know, taking technology that was really innovative, maybe came out of one of the universities, a place like Carnegie Mellon, and figure out, look, where does that fit into the marketplace? And so I did that for a number of years. And I think because of that experience and getting to work with so many different types of technologies, robotics, you know, software and internet stuff, even a couple of, you know, crazy things like some semiconductor stuff, all about kind of product market fit. It really kind of set me on this pathway of, you know, hey, what skill set I really developed and superpower I kind of developed was being able to look at a bunch of different data about the market, being able to go out and talk to a bunch of customers, not asking them explicitly what they wanted, but trying to understand, you know, what pain they were feeling in their lives and figure out how could technology come in and help solve that. And so that's kind of set the stage for everything I've done ever since. Now, you have a background in both product and marketing, right? And talk to me a little bit about why those fields intersected for you and how they influence each other and make you a better leader. 
Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. It took me a while, you know, it was probably that, you know, I had kind of bounced back and forth between the two. It was really when I came to Microsoft the first time that those two things really clicked for me. Again, it was, I was working in the office group. Um, I was actually driving uh, more product management stuff. Um, for example, I know it's, it's kind of hard to believe now, but uh, for the very first time uh, when I was there, I was leading a team that enabled you to buy office directly from Microsoft. And instead of having to take those big DVDs and install them into your computers, which some of your listeners probably will, <laughs> won't even remember, um, you know, you were able to just stream the software uh, directly from the internet, right, directly from the web down to kind of your computer. And so I was doing that type of stuff, true product management stuff, figuring out, look, what does this experience need to be? How can we deliver it? Yada, yada. But as we moved to Office 365 and more of a SaaS model, you know, I think, and, and all, you know, for the very first time, Things like customer retention mattered, right? If you were moving to a monthly, mo uh, you know, subscription model, you basically had to earn that share of wallet every month, right? Instead of having to earn it every three or four years when a new release of Office would come out. And so it was kind of at that point in time when I realized, and I think internally at Microsoft, we started to realize, look, you're starting to get to this point in the world of SaaS as it was emerging where the product is essentially the marketing, right? And certainly that's something at Pendo, I think you know very well, right? In terms of, hey, how do you actually leverage the product and the application, the experiences themselves to really be the marketing that helps people get value from the software that they're using, right? And so I think it was just at that point with the rise of SaaS that those two worlds really started to come together and have served me very well ever since. Yeah, and that's an interesting time, too, to be at Microsoft. So tell me a little bit about that, because now I don't remember if you got there before Satya took over as CEO or after, but regardless, there's this big transition in, in how they think about business, right? Because they were they were a, a CD printing company, like you installed stuff. And even if you bought it on the internet, you know, you're downloading and installing it. But now all of a sudden they're, they're trying to think about the SaaS business. And it's it's different because like you said, you have to, to get that reoccurring revenue, you have to deliver the reoccurring value. And then the whole mentality is different. I remember Balmer one time saying, you know, I don't believe in software as a service, but I believe in software with a service, you know, kind of thing. And it was yes. like half steps. And so you were at kind of like the forefront of Microsoft when they're moving to the whole SaaS model. They're, talk to me about that. Talk to me about the challenges and, and the sure. struggles and the big successes and, and why that moved so well for Microsoft. Because they're a, they're a great success story, really, in doing that. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, timing-wise, right, just to give you some context, I was definitely at the heart of the Balmer era, right? I was there trying to do this at the time when he was saying those things, right? So there was definitely some headwind going against it. You know, it's, as is always the case, it seems like, um, in anything you're trying to do, you know, I was very fortunate in that the person who was running the business side of office at the time, actually the two people, um, one of them now is Chris Capicello, the chief marketing officer at, at Microsoft. And the other one um, runs marketing for really all of cloud marketing. So cloud marketing for Azure, for Office 365, for Dynamics 365, right? Both of them were incredibly supportive of trying to innovate and go in this direction. And at the time, honestly, it felt like we were starved for innovation, right? It was like, hey, we were kind of on this path of we had only wanted to invest in things that looked like they were going to be surefire home runs, right? But these two individuals really kind of provided the high-level support to kind of buck that trend. And fortunately, you know, when Office, you know, the Windows business was starting to, um, you know, decrease a little bit, and the Office business was really taking on the role of being the primary revenue driver for the company. Fortunately, when that's the case, you've got a lot of clout in the company, and so. You know, there was this effort to try to say, before we let somebody else come in and cannibalize us, let's actually try to, to cannibalize our own kind of core perpetual software business. And it actually started out as almost like a startup within it. I actually worked in a separate building with a couple hundred engineers and kind of other marketing and product management resources. And we kind of did this almost as a startup. And then about the time when it started to gain some traction, and at the same time, you know, Google had come out with you know, their web-based productivity applications, right, with their, their G Suite, you know, it started to put pressure on this in a bit, in a bit more of a direct way um, and accelerate things in the marketplace. And so we kind of got brought back into the, the core office business, and it kind of just became the way that we did things. But that's not to say that it was necessarily straightforward. Um, I think I remember leaving during that time frame, and, and when I left, uh, I went to Salesforce for a while after that, 
people would ask me, hey, what was it like at Microsoft? And I would say it was fantastic. And I'd be like, I got to be part of the group that really drove us from being perpetual software to SaaS. And it was amazing. But I'd also say I did about three years worth of work over the course of seven years because it just, you know, when you've invested that much in your core businesses, making that change is really hard and it just takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of time. And so part of it is just patience and persistence and grinding it out for a long enough period of time where you get the critical mass and then it kind of takes on a life of its own. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine that it was, it was a tough slog. Did you ever worry it wasn't going to get there? All the time. I think, um, you know, every year and a half or so, I would kind of uh, spend some time saying, look, are we really going to get there or not? And, you know, do I want to keep doing this? It's kind of a, a, you know, it's hard, right? What I've come to learn over time is I don't think it's any harder than, and, and you and I were even just chatting about this just recently, right? I don't think it's any harder necessarily than doing a true startup if you ride that startup out through its full life cycle, right? Um, you know, those things take five, six, seven years. And I think, you know, when I was younger, it was hard for me to imagine that it had to take that long. But I, I do think, you know, there's this natural cycle of growth. And if you look at kind of, you know, how fast companies have gotten to a billion dollars in market cap, um, particularly the B2B side, you know, there's a sweet spot between like four and seven years, right, that it typically takes. And I've come to learn that if you're a startup, that's about the cycle. And if you're doing something entrepreneurial within a big venture that's competing against one of your core businesses, it's also probably about the cycle. So. I ask myself that lots of times, but I also ask myself, hey, if I left when this actually happens and you're not part of it, like, aren't you going to regret that for the rest of your life? And so that was always the thing that kept me there and super glad it did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think about it from a startup perspective and, you know, it's even longer. I mean, I think Asana, who's, you know, going through a direct listing soon, I guess, they started in 2008, you know, Snowflake's yeah. been around for a while, Unity, JFrog, you know, they all have a long history. It, it takes a while, especially in today's, public markets where there's a necessity to be of a certain size. It's definitely a, a, a marathon, definitely not a sprint to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think, you know, that's where um, you and I talk some, right? I mean, that's where, you know, having the ability to kind of have a core product management background, it's important to be able to bounce around a little bit, right? I mean, you talked a little bit about my background and bridging the gap between product management and marketing and you know, I've had roles even when I was there previously, right, during the middle of that, where I've been able to go back and forth between the two. And while I'm still working on the same broad initiatives, it does kind of give you a renewed energy and, and feels like it's almost like a, a new job enough to kind of just keep you going um, and not get bored of what you're doing. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that is a benefit of, too, of having a large company to work there is that there's a lot of different things that you could potentially do, right? Yeah. And exposure to new markets, there would be new opportunities to learn. So, uh, you know, talk to me about your challenges now, right? You're over in the mixed reality, IoT, quantum computing group. Talk to me about what you're doing there. And those, it sounds like those are all at different stages, right? Where we're starting yeah. to see a lot of AR, VR kind of stuff. So I feel like they're starting to get to, if not already, product market fit, where maybe in quantum computing, I would say we're probably you know, a good bit away from some of the practical applications there. I mean, just, just spitballing, you know more than I do about that. You know, so talk to me about running a, a groups at, at differing stages and how that affects your ability to manage that portfolio. Yeah. Yeah, look, I think it's a great question. You know, obviously, I think, you know, I love to use, you know, Jeffrey Moore, right, who kind of originally wrote Crossing the Chasm. Some of his, his latest work is about innovating inside of large companies. And he's got a framework just around, you know, definitions of Horizon 1, Horizon 2, and Horizon 3 businesses, right? And it's all based on how long it's going to take you to get to material revenue, right? And if it's, it's now, if you have a product that's kind of currently material or going to be material in the next 12 months, that's kind of Horizon 1, Horizon two is more like 12 to 36 months and then horizon three is beyond that, right? And so if I look at kind of even just those three things you mentioned, uh, IoT, mixed reality and quantum computing, they're all definitely different phases. You know, IoT for us is just at the point of becoming material revenue. And you have to keep in mind it's Microsoft, right? So that means it's, it's a very big business for us um, that's just now becoming material. Yeah, um, what, what does quant- material mean for Microsoft on the revenue side? Well, I'll say it this way, right? Uh, I don't want to say anything in terms of revenue. I don't think we've disclosed what we actually drive in revenue from the IT perspective. But what I can say is, you know, if you think about material revenue as being 10% of kind of your overall revenue, which is the definition that that Jeffrey Moore uses, and you start doing the math of, hey, what does it take to get to 10% of Azure, right, revenue, which is where the group that we sit in, 
it's a pretty big number, right? Let's say it, it doesn't end yeah, with yeah. an M, it ends with a B in, in terms of billions after it, right? So, and so, you know, that those businesses, when they get to that stage, you know, there are thousands of people and they're big and, and whatnot, right? And then you get the other end of the spectrum, you know, quantum, for example. I think there's one product person um, focused on quantum, right, across Microsoft at this point in time, because again, it's you're, it's much more of a Horizon 3 business. You know, with the, that stuff, it's hard to say whether the real product marketing fit is going to come in three years or seven years, right? It's probably somewhere in between, but it's definitely not going to probably happen in the next two or three years, barring some massive unforeseen scientific breakthrough that just changes the game, right? And so then you got something like mixed reality, which is really just finding its product market fit now. And I would even say in that regard, you know, it's still kind of early days. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we look at our, our HoloLens business as an example, when we launched HoloLens 1, it was very much focused on the, going after consumers and consumer opportunities. You know, I joined to kind of help us, you know, kind of pivot that a little bit and launch kind of our HoloLens 2, the, the product we have out there today. And it's much more focused on the enterprise market. And even within the enterprise market, very much focused on really first-line workers, um, not people who are sitting behind a desk doing their jobs, but people working on manufacturing floors field service agents going out in the field to repair stuff, oil wells or big pieces of equipment or machinery, you know, people who are working, um, you know, in healthcare on the front lines, taking care of patients, those types of things. So, you know, and I would say like within sectors like healthcare and retail and manufacturing and architecture, engineering, construction, and increasingly with everything that's happening with remote education and education, we're starting to get and demonstrate some real product market fit in those areas. But when you think about, you know, information workers, people that spend their life behind a desk and use technology all the time or consumers, we've still got a long ways to go to find product market fit in those other segments. So I would say, you know, within, you know, on the one hand, you've got product market fit within a segment, but in terms of the mass market, we still have a ways to go. Yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. So talk to me a little bit about those industries and, and how they're going to change, you know, tomorrow. Like, how, how are they going to drive tomorrow's revenue? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, it's fascinating. I think one of the, the, the things that we all, you know, kind of can appreciate is just how basically things like the cloud and even, you know, increasingly getting more compute power uh, at the edge, right, close to where work is being done. They fundamentally changed, obviously, the way we build and deploy applications. But I think the more significant thing is they've essentially helped make every company, regardless of industry, a technology company, right? So we've seen this massive wave of digital transformation over the last five, six, seven, 10 years. What's interesting is as that's happened, these first-line worker folks who I've talked about have largely been left behind in that, right? If you look at the world, there's 2 billion first-line workers out there, right? And there's about a half a billion information workers, people who sit behind their desks to perform their job uh, using a computer. And those 2 billion first-line workers are the people who, you know, are the first to kind of interact with your customers, the first to kind of uh, drive your day-to-day operations. But because they're, you know, out there using their hands, they're out there engaging, working, it's really hard for them to do their jobs and leverage a laptop, right? The, the biggest part of digital transformation that many of them have played has been having some of their tasks kind of automated and kind of taken away from them, right? The manual things that they, the repetitive things that they would do. And so what's happening as you think about a world where with mixed reality, you're starting to put a computer onto their head and enable them to kind of leverage the power of computing to help better perform their jobs while being able to kind of still see the real world around them and use their hands and and perform certain tasks. We're seeing this massive uptake of mixed reality to say, okay, now for the first time, we've got a solution for these first-line workers, you know, to help them assemble, uh, you know, the Rolls-Royce jet engines faster for Airbus airplanes or, you know, help them reduce kind of errors, which are incredibly costly when you're manufacturing, you're Lockheed Martin, and you're manufacturing like the Orion spacecraft, right, to take humans to the moon in a couple of years, right? And, and so, you know, we're starting to see this, this massive pull from these markets because all of a sudden, you know, they have a new way to kind of adopt technology, but more importantly, they have a new way to patch in remote experts, which is especially important in today's world, you know, given how difficult it is to travel. So if you're a building inspector for a construction agency, and you know, you have uh, are, are building something that needs to be inspected, and you've got experts that are situated in certain places around the world that you typically fly in to do the final inspections and sign off, 
that's really difficult to do today. So now you can put a mixed reality device onto somebody who's local and they can walk through the building and you can see everything that they can see and you can interact with that world that they're seeing, right? You can, uh, you know, circle certain things and identify and say, hey, zoom in here, let's get closer. Let's open this thing up. Let's look behind the covers a little bit um, to complete our inspection. So I think this whole world around remote assistance is really, really, really popular right now, um, given kind of what we're facing in, in our world, right, with COVID and everything else that's happening. But I mean, it even feels like it's going to be, you know, even post-COVID, it feels more productive too, maybe, yes? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I hear all the time, you hear in the news, or you read in the news all the time about, hey, this whole remote work thing, many people have committed to not kind of reopening physical offices and, and they're going to do that. I think we hear it all the time, like these inspections. It's like, my gosh, why aren't we just doing this all the time? And I really think, I really think in a lot of these cases, we won't go back to the way we're doing it, right? I really do believe, and I'm not sure I love the term, but I really do believe in some of these cases, this does just become the new normal. Think about, uh, you've got healthcare professionals, right, who are taking care of patients that have COVID today. Well, they can send in one person, right, with all of their PPE and, and a mixed reality device, a HoloLens device, and like four or five people can watch what they're doing and take care of that patient, right? And yet only one person is exposed to that patient. You know, that type of kind of basic use case makes just good sense, <laughs> regardless of whether we're talking about COVID or some other infectious disease or exposure to radiation or whatever the case may be, right? And so I really do think you're hitting on it. I think a lot of this stuff has forced us to accelerate the rate at which we change. But once that change starts to happen, there's probably no going back. Yeah, I mean, you can just, you can have an expert that's anywhere that could be brought to somewhere else through that, right? Yeah, I mean, imagine the implications of that, right? Um, you know, we see that even today, things like everything from education, right? You know, in China, for example, they have real difficulty hiring uh, good quality teachers in the remote areas of China. But if that, if that teacher is actually in Shanghai and conducting classes, but, you know, is actually um, you know, able to kind of interact with, in more than just a 2D computer screen way, you know, students who are located anywhere, you know, the possibilities really become kind of fascinating. Or in the medical professional, right? You're, you know, you're a surgeon and you're in the middle of your procedure, you're doing a pre-op, um, you know, run-through of a procedure. And if you can patch in a remote expert to get a second opinion on something, while you can still use your hands and kind of still kind of continue doing what you're doing, like that's huge, um, and in terms of kind of the potential. So, yeah, that's certainly yeah, an area where it's not going to stop. It's like triggering thoughts. Like, can I just rebuild schools and input instead of like people going to schools? You just put a device on, and then like the difference with Zoom is like the Zoom isn't an, an immersive experience, and it's hard to watch what people are doing. It's hard to see what they're doing. But you could actually build complete interactivity in a virtual world with these headset kind of devices, whether they're AR or VR, you know, some of this mixed reality where teachers could look at and watch someone doing math problems on a piece of paper, right? In essence, that's yep. sitting at a desk at home with this advice on. There's and we're seeing this happen today, right? Case Western Reserve, right, in, in Ohio, right, is, you know, basically their anatomy classes that they're teaching, they're using HoloLens, right, to kind of help with their anatomy classes. And, you know, they're in a situation where they've gotten, they've been using it long enough now, they've got some fantastic studies, longitudinal studies that show the impact of it, right? Hmm. Students, for example, that are using a textbook and a cadaver to learn anatomy, right, um, versus using a HoloLens and a cadaver, right? Those that are using the HoloLens or the mixed reality device and a cadaver tend to score a grade or a grade and a half higher than those who are using a textbook, right? Those who are actually using HoloLens, right, and have the ability to kind of interact with a virtual cadaver, right, something that is 3D, they can dissect it just like they could a cadaver, they can go back and redo things that they did wrong and kind of all of that stuff, you know, they tend to retain the knowledge 150% longer than if they just have a chance to get on a cadaver and do it once and learn from a textbook. And so this whole area of remote assistance is huge. And this whole area of learning by doing and learning in a hands-on fashion, which we have always known is very effective, but oftentimes not practical. I think those are the trends that are not going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, it's very interesting. It makes me think like, what do product managers need to know about? And I think, you know, quantum computing, right? We can kind of push that off because maybe product managers don't really need to know about a lot about that for now. But 
mixed reality. It feels like they do, depending on their space. Now, think about how that's going to affect their business and the products they're building. Even if their their business is, is more or less software these days, there could be a lot of impact on how that experience in people's jobs could change. Yeah, I think tremendously, right? I think I think the key, and, it, and this goes almost back to product management 101 stuff, right? I think the key is, you know, really focusing on and being diligent about understanding what people are trying to do and then figuring out how do you apply technology to help them do it more effectively. And it sounds so basic, right? But it's like, you know, most people don't know or come to the conclusion that you just came to, which is, hey, maybe what we should do is just fundamentally rethink schools, right, from the ground up, right? And if you do that and you go through the exercise and say, okay, if we did that and we had schools without walls and we had kind of experts, I mean, think about the types of people that you could bring in to talk to a classroom, right? Um, In a world where, hey, you're not restricted by just having somebody have to be physically present in there. You know, you could literally have the president of the United States or you could have, you know, a Nobel Peace Prize winner, right? Or a a Nobel laureate um, in science, right? Come in and and talk to a classroom. It's pretty fascinating. No, and and, on the other side, you could bring students places. Like uh, I was talking with someone the other day who's like, oh yeah, my, my kid's using, you know, the Oculus in order to visit this museum in Italy. And like, imagine that in an art history class, like right. let's just bring people through and actually walk through a museum and look at, you know, the old master's paintings and discuss that, right? And the idea of being yeah. able to do that in this environment is, is very, it's intriguing and compelling. Yeah, and look, I think we just hit on something, right? I think this also goes back to, you know, also being really diligent, I think, from a product management perspective about which technologies to use when is super important, right? Technology is changing so fast. You know, you and I have talked about, you know, I, I use this term mixed reality to talk about this whole spectrum from kind of augmented reality where you're taking digital content and overlaying it on the physical world, like the types of Pokemon Go or Minecraft Earth experiences you get on your phone, right? Or when you hold your phone up to the sky and you can see the the constellations overlaid on the sky, right? To the other end, which is like, you know, the Oculus version where you're, you know, completely immersed in digital technology. Both are important, right? If you think about that example you just said in terms of being able to go to a museum in Italy, like great virtual reality today can take you places that you can't physically go, Right. Augmented reality is so good at enhancing the places you are. So, for example, you know, I know you and I both spent time back in Pennsylvania. Imagine being in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, right, at the battlefields of the Civil War, and you're out there standing there in this place where this is where this actually happened. And that ability to kind of physically be there is really, really powerful. But if you also had the ability to augment it with this, to see what really happened overlaid on top of that actual battlefield, those are the types of experiences that you just can't get from a computer. And those are the types of experiences that you can't get in life. You can only get them by bringing those two worlds together, right? And so to me, it really comes down to how can you figure out the types of things that are possible today and figure out where can you apply those in a way that actually is ready for adoption now? That Gettysburg example is a great example, right? I love it, it's awesome. But to do an augmented experience, uh, reality kind of device today costs two or three or four thousand dollars. So it's the type of thing that's probably several years down the road to seeing that stuff become kind of mainstreamed um, in that regard. But the vir- you know the, the virtual reality aspect of that, okay, well, how do I immerse myself in a truly digital experience where I am? How do I transport myself to that Gettysburg battlefield? You know that's a five hundred dollar experience today, right? It's happening now. Yeah, I'm even thinking the augmented experience, even with with schools where, you know, tuition's in the 20s or 30s of thousands a year. I mean, they can pony up for a device for their students, you know? (laughs) No doubt. And I think that's why you're seeing places like a lot of adoption in like anatomy classes, a lot of adoption in engineering classes, right? Those institutions where tuition is higher education, right? And oftentimes specialized fields where, yeah, it makes a ton of sense. So, you know, stepping back to your time now at Microsoft in these different spaces, talk to me about how you create a culture of innovation? Because really, when you're talking about things that are, you know, pre-product market fit, whether they're Horizons, you know, one or two or what have you, you know, you're really, you have to build this culture of innovation. Uh, Talk to me about that. Yeah, you do. And And I think this is where, if you look at Microsoft and over its history, right, we've got this tremendously rich history from a research perspective, right, of really driving amazing innovation, and then, you know, we have a handful of examples where we've been able to kind of take that stuff, that, that research, and actually commercialize it in big ways that are fundamentally changed the way uh, things happen. Like, I can think of, for example, 
things like Xbox, um, as an example, right? I mean, that's clearly an area where Microsoft innovated and and took stuff from kind of research around multiplayer gaming and took stuff, um, you know, that type of stuff and was able to apply it and kind of carry it through. Then you've got other examples, of course, right, where we've done amazing research and even oftentimes had early leads in markets that we've kind of squandered. And, you know, things like the phone obviously kind of come to, the mobile phone come to, to the light, right? And so I think in terms of building that culture of innovation, it's not so much about building the culture of innovation. I think there's lots of innovation at a company like Microsoft. I think most companies have tons of innovation from an R&D perspective. I think it's really building the discipline of how do you actually build the right models so that you can start to evaluate of all of this fascinating stuff we have in R&D, how do we build the right, for lack of a better term, discipline and stage gate process to determine which ones we should keep plowing money into to commercialize, right? And then this is where, to me, the discipline of this is the exact same discipline that venture capitalists use every day and the exact same discipline that if you're doing a startup, you run your own company through, right? Which is, you know, it all comes down to the fundamentals in my mind of product management, which is, you know, how do we actually identify kind of the market opportunity that we want to go after, how do we actually size that opportunity and get a realistic view of what the, the total addressable market is and, and realistically what we can achieve by when? How do we ultimately kind of get through the milestone of prototyping something and finding product market fit, right? Once we have product market fit, how do we put a strategy in place that lets us get into that market and kind of expand from there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so um, to me, it's a matter of in these big companies, you know, they're phenomenal oftentimes at, at working at massive global scale. And it's just a matter of that commercialization discipline needed to take stuff out of R&D and put processes in place. And a portfolio of things I think is really important because kind of like a, a venture capitalist, right? Eight out of 10 things that you invest in are going to fail. One of them might be a, a moderate kind of, you know, single or double, or, or if you're lucky, a triple. And one of them might be a home run or a grand slam. You've got similar odds, right? And you've got to kind of just build that same discipline to know, hey, is this thing working or not working, right? And it's fascinating. I, I you know, I know I mentioned Jeffrey Moore a couple of times. I think his biggest kind of thing about why big companies are not very good at innovation is there's this inflection point where, you have kind of demonstrated early product market fit and you're plowing a bunch of resources into it because you've got a ton of engineers working on it. You now have to build out a go-to-market team to go start to sell this thing, but you're nowhere near at Microsoft scale being a material revenue business, right? And so if you're spending, you know, uh, making, let's just say you're making $100 million a year, but spending a billion dollars a year to do it, and you got to grind that out for a couple of years, it takes some real conviction to kind of, you know, not just kind of stop that partway through, right? And so I think it's a matter of helping everyone to understand how do I track, because revenue can't be the only measure of success for something at this stage, how do I track whether we're on pace to, to have this thing become a meaningful revenue or material revenue in a couple of years, even if it's not showing it now? And again, it's all the, the basics that we know from a product management perspective, right? How many yeah. people are buying the product? How many are using them? Got you have the other challenge at Microsoft too, of like having markets that are big enough to be material, right? If I'm doing a startup from scratch and I get up to 500 million in revenue, I'm probably like, you know, most of them are probably like, sweet, this is great. I'm big enough to be a public company. You know, I'm beyond big enough to be a public company. I'm definitely an acquisition target as an entrepreneur. Right. I, I could build a, a nice business that way and personally become extremely wealthy. At Microsoft, getting to a couple hundred million in a major business unit probably is like, well, do we want to invest there? Correct. Yeah, correct. Exactly. Yeah. Unless there's some path to getting it into you know, the billions, and I would even say, you know, five or 10 billion, unless you've got a clear path there, it's really hard, right? And so, and I also think this is another reason why innovation is tough in these companies, because in some ways it's easier to let a startup go out there and kind of do that and figure that out. And then at that point in time, be the one who acquires, uh, you know, kind of that company if it looks like it's taking off and in a big enough space, right? Um, yeah, to prove that the market is actually big enough. Like that's that was some of the argument, even like in the, you know, Pendo's in the product management space, right? Selling to product people and people building products, there was always a concern at, you know, how big is that market? Is that a $10 billion market, right? Is that big enough? And I could see that part of being that 
you know, part of being that entrepreneur was not only building the company, but showing that the market can grow to be big enough that it's interesting to people that would be the, the Microsofts of the world, right? Yeah. So. Actually, the mixed reality world is a great example of that, right? We've, I've spent a lot of time really trying to get a build up a bottoms up view of what do I think the real market opportunity is. And I talked about the opportunity today is all with these first line workers, right? Helping them out in the field to do their jobs. The challenge there is, you know, if we're realistic about what we think the market opportunity is, right, meaning in terms of how many first-line workers are there in which industries that really would benefit from mixed reality, and then if you factor in some level of tech adoption rate, right, like not everyone adopts overnight, like we only think it's about a billion-dollar market today. It's really hard for a company like Microsoft to kind of get all excited about, you know, spending a a lot of money to go after a billion-dollar market. But, you know, this is where building out the full picture of, but those investments today lead us into going after the information worker market and also lead us eventually to get into consumer applications. And when you start to look at it that way, right, um, all of a sudden it starts to become big enough even today, even though you can't, even though that's those consumer markets and information worker markets aren't here today, it starts to become big enough that, okay, if we make these core investments to get into it, there's a clear path to this thing becoming a 30, 40, 50 billion dollar market in five or six years, right? Yeah, yeah, and you, you can definitely see that. It reminds me of the Connect time, like, because Microsoft, I always felt had the first Alexa, right? They had this Connect device that I loved talking to when it was called Xbox, which is a lot easier to say, by the way, than Cortana. But anyway, that's a whole aside. And, and you know, it's like the microphone that was right by the TV speaker. And I was like, dude, I just wanted some Microsoft PM to call me and see, like, how can I fix this? Like, move the microphone so I can put it somewhere else. They can yes. still hear me, but not get, like, the over, you know, the, the TV speaker overriding what I'm saying. And I was like, and then you have a whole voice assistant. You have Alexa. That would be awesome. And I was like, ah. but well, I think part of that was it was it was early. It was early to that moment, right? And they saw it as like this cool thing they can add on top of a video game technology, as opposed to you know what it could be as a virtual assistant and, and that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, and look, it's interesting though. I mean, th- and this goes back to about part of this goes back to about having persistence, right? It takes a while. You know, Connect is still very much alive. It's actually now part of the portfolio I manage at an Azure. And what's fascinating about it is. What we're starting to see is a lot of people now, because if you think about Connect when it came out in gaming, right, it's always had these incredible depth sensors. So it could watch your body movements and know what you're doing. Well, as we start to move to this world of mixed reality, you know, rather than having a camera on my 2D computer screen that captures and projects me to you in 2D form, with that depth sensing capability, right, the Connect has become a really valuable tool for looking, you can have a connect by your computer and it creates a 3D version of yourself that you can start to kind of hollow port anywhere you want, right? It's like, hey, I can have a cheap camera and instead of you and I talking through this screen, I could be there in the room with you, right? My holographic 3D image, it looks just like me and increasingly so, right, can be there with you. And so those things sometimes, again, that comes back to, I think, sometimes finding the right product market fit. It's like a lot of times you have the right technology, but if you don't find that product market fit, you just miss cycles. You talked about missing the voice cycle, and I think it's very true. At the same time, we've continued to invest in that technology, and now we've got a chance to get onto the next cycle, kind of this whole area around next generation collaborative meetings and how can you, you know, start to be there in person even when you're not physically there, right? Yeah, so, I mean, Zoom, the last time I looked, and it's been a few days, uh, I think the markets have been down, where it was worth $127 billion. So can we get a, a Microsoft 3D Zoom version? I mean, come on, that's a big enough market for you guys, right? Like, there, there, there's no doubt, right? There's we're we're no recording doubt. right now on Zoom, but I would much rather be more immersive 3D mat. We could point at things, maybe do some whiteboarding, talk about yeah. this stuff. Where, you know, we're right now, like my hands are off the screen because I'm gesturating. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I'm totally with you. And look, this goes back to, I was talking about the first line worker market, right? It was only a $1 billion opportunity. And I think we've always known that this market was gonna come to fruition, right? This kind of market for information workers, for doing the next generation types of collaboration, co-designing new prototypes of products, whiteboarding, sticky note kind of assorting, and the type of stuff that, you know, is true collaboration, right? 
but I think we were expecting it to be like 2023, 2024. Every once in a while, you get the luck of kind of some, some tailwind. And this is certainly the case, right? The fact that we're all being forced to work remotely, there's tremendous pull in the marketplace to do more to commercialize that stuff faster. And so I think it's a fascinating area. And you, you know, you mentioned connect. I think it's one there. Connect will play a big part in. In fact, actually, um, I don't know about your audience, right? In fact, uh, at Virtual Burning Man that just happened, right? Um, recently, yeah. Diplo basically gave a concert there and he used an Azure Connect to kind of record himself doing his concert and then holoport himself into there, uh, into that environment, right? Into Altspace VR to kind of actually be there. And so he was actually recording in his studio, actually performing live, and yet he was showing up there as if he was there in person. So pretty fascinating area. And I think it's going to be a fun one to keep your eye on. Yeah, that, I mean, that's pretty wild. I mean, to be honest, I have like, I've always been a big fan of Microsoft, even when I wasn't a cool to be a fan of Microsoft. And, and now Microsoft is cool again. So I feel kind of justified in all of that uh, because I always thought that they invested heavily in a lot of different technology areas and kind of built the future. And, you know, that's only increased with Satya, I think there, who's like- I totally agree. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, look, I think it's, he knows that innovation is the name of the game. I think there's a couple of things, right? He's very big on innovation and kind of making sure that we continue to innovate, but he's also very big on doing it in a way that enables a whole ecosystem of companies to come along, right? And we've talked some, I know you and I in the past around, hey, how can you make, you know, it's awesome. Everyone wants to be a platform company, but being a platform company only works if you actually, you know, build an open ecosystem and have enough type, breadth and depth of capabilities that an entire ecosystem can form around it, right? And so he's very big into that as well, which has helped. So yeah, now I just have to get him on the podcast too. I'll, talk to <laughs> I'll ask him next time I see him. So okay, yeah, please, please do it for me. Make sure he watches this episode. I think. It was- <laughs> I will. I'll say, hey, Sanjay, I have something. Maybe you can learn a few things here. Um, uh, you know, I wouldn't be presumptive there or anything, but, you know, I mean, it, it'd, be, it'd be a great win if I could get someone like that on this podcast. Uh, not to say all my other guests haven't been great, because, I mean, I think <laughs> I've been super fortunate in being able to meet some great people through Product Love. But, yeah, it would be interesting. So, you know, talk to me about what else you see in the future, right? We're talking about, we talked a lot about mixed reality and how that could change frontline workers and education and then lots of different things, really. Talk to me about all the trends you see coming up that product managers should keep an eye on. Yeah, look, I think some of them are um, really cool, right? I mean, like, I'd love to talk about quantum computing. It's so incredible, right, in terms of the promise of it. But, it, but it's also far out, like we said. I mean, some of them aren't as cool as that, but I think they're really big trends that are important to keep an eye on. Um, you know, I, I uh, before I came back to Microsoft, I was working at about 150 or $200 million software company that was focused on really kind of the business process automation space, but really kind of using low code uh, or no code technology to do it, right? So I think this whole world of no code app development is a fascinating one. You know, we've talked about it for many, many years, but it's now coming to a point where rather than me having to write code, you know, I can kind of drag and drop things together that actually have the logic built into them, right? And I can configure them rather than having to code them. And, I, and you're getting to a point where when you start taking kind of low code or no code types of applications to run certain logic or to do certain things, and you start layering in the power of um, that we have available through machine learning and AI at certain points in that, where it's, you know, kind of the AI that's actually doing some of the the heavy logic and figuring stuff out, somebody like myself who has an English degree, right, and a biology minor and somehow found himself in tech can all of a sudden overnight become a pretty powerful coder in terms of what I can build and applications I can deploy. And so, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there about traction in that marketplace today. Um, but I think we're just going to see more and more and more of that as we live into the, go into the future. And you know, we all know any of us who have children, right? Again, it's the stuff that is just so native to them. Like, I really believe this next generation, a lot of this stuff will just be native to how they actually work. And they won't even think of it as coding. They just think of it as part of kind of the way that you do things, right? And so that's one of those trend areas where I just, you're seeing it all over the place. It's very hot right now in the AI space, right? No code app development for AI and kind of that type. I just think that's going to continue to kind of be the case. Yeah, no, I I would agree. I'm I'm a big fan of that space, the web flows of the world and, and others. Uh, there's lots of cool things there. 
You know, and <laughs> it's interesting too. You you mentioned again, you know, you're you're coming from an English background. I've seen some of the best product leaders really not have technical backgrounds, right? Because there's there's a lot of soft skills that are really important for product leaders out there. And I think sometimes people overvalue some of the technical skills. Not to say they aren't important, but curiosity, passion, rigor around you know frameworks and thinking about product market fit. There's a lot of there's a lot of things that can be brought to bear by leaders who have more diverse, you know, skill sets, you know, so I, I, I do want to say, and I, I know I'm a big fan of this and I'll always mention it, but I'll, I'll continue mentioning it, that those of the people out there that want to be product leaders and aren't today and don't have a technical background, that should in no way stop you from leading a group at a Microsoft, a Facebook, a Google or wherever. I, I totally agree. Look, I think it, it comes down to, I think what's important in that vein is figuring out, look, Product management and product is such a big space. You cover so much ground, right? Um, you have to wear so many different hats. I think the key in that is being able to, you know, be an avid learner, someone who wants to learn all of it, but also being very realistic and leveraging where your strengths are, right? So if I think about my strengths as a product person, my strengths, not surprisingly to anyone here, right, are uh, minor in biology. Like I've got really good systems kind of thinking skill sets. But more importantly, what I have is, you know, I'm, I'm a very good writer for not surprisingly as an English major, right? And so this ability to tell a story and weave the story together that brings everybody from finance to sales to the engineering team along is so important, right? I always talk about when I went into Salesforce, right? I finally like, it's the one company I walked in on day one. And I felt like I was among my people, like from day one. And, and the reason for that was, you know, I was running product for their marketing cloud and then eventually their IoT cloud. But the way that they do product there, it's very story led. It's very, you know, it's basically, you know, and, and to use kind of product management parlance, like it, it all starts with writing a point of view about how you think the world or something should work, right? And then having a whole bunch of, you know, high level epics that kind of, you know, go through hey, what is the ultimate experience that you would want to build and what are the high-level epics that come out of it? And it all starts from that direction. And it's not surprising. Think about how Salesforce started. Benioff had this vision that there had to be a better way, right? We shouldn't all have to deploy software locally, right? He started with this whole, it was all about storytelling, this whole no cloud kind of mantra, even though, or I mean, no software mantra, even though he's like the fourth largest software company in the world now. But, you know, like it all starts with that story and that's what gets everyone behind it. And that's such a valuable skill set when you're trying to, to be a product manager building new innovative things, right? And so part of my point is, Finding your angle is really, really, really important. You ultimately have to be capable across many, many different areas, but use your strengths based on the discipline you come from. I always actually, I have this firm belief. I think um, people who come out of UX, right, user experience, I think they're the best product managers in the world, bar none, right? Because by their very nature, what they've been trained to do is to really go and understand people and how people work and how people do certain things. And then figure out, like, how do you design for that? And that's really, um, I think, you know, if you can do that well, you're going to, you know, you have a shot at being a great product person. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I think the thought process and the framework and how you think through problems is important. And, and just having the right approach to like a, a customer centric approach, as opposed yeah. to like, you know, building something based upon what you think, especially if you're not building for a persona that's you. Well, I know, I know we're getting quick towards the end of this podcast and it's been great. I got a couple final questions. Like, let's turn it back to Matt. What's your favorite product? Ah, ah yeah, my favorite product. Um, so <laughs> I want to share a story quickly on, on favorite product. My favorite product of the day is Purell hand sanitizer. And the reason I'll say why my favorite product is Purell hand sanitizer is I can go back. It Doesn't was probably it just the germs though. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Just squish the germs. Yeah, exactly. So back in 1998, right, I had an opportunity to kind of help to kind of do concept testing for this notion of hand sanitizer, right? And it was Purell that was kind of wanting to take this to market and did a bunch of research, talked to a bunch of users, and to a T, every single one of those, you know, their target demographic was middle-aged women, to a T, every single one of them said, hey, I would never use Purell hand sanitizer. I would never use something like this. All it does is smush the germs further into your hands, right? Because Mentally, we're so used to kind of washing our hands with soap and then rinsing off the germs and rinsing off the soap with water, right? 
And so, you know, my recommendation at the time to this company was, yeah, you're too far ahead of the market. You guys should probably not launch this thing, right? And of course, they ignored me and they did and they launched it. And think about in today's world where we would be if something as simple as that hadn't gotten out of the gate, right? Because, uh, you know, because somebody had taken, you know, a question that we asked at face value, right? Would you use this and kind of accepted, you know, the fact that, hey, people can't envision what this could be. With that said, I also love it because it talks a little bit about how long sometimes some of this stuff takes to find product market fit. I mean, that was 2000, right? And it was probably not until the late, you know, 2007, 2008, that hand sanitizer became mainstream. And now in today's world, like, wow, where would we be without hand sanitizer in, in kind of our current, you know, facing the current pandemic we have? And so, you know, you asked me, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's my favorite product, but it's certainly my favorite product story and one that hits close to home because I think it just reflects everything that it takes to get a product successfully to market and kind of the mentality and the, the wherewithal and the, the stamina that you need to have if you're going to be a great product person committed to something that's really going to change fundamentally how we do something. Yeah, well, I love it. I, and I love product people that think about telling things as stories, right? Storytelling is a very powerful trait for product managers, I think. Yeah, like I said, that's where my English background comes into play. It's yeah, helpful. absolutely, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of strengths from, you know, non-technical backgrounds for product management, curiosity, you know, storytelling, passion even, uh, though, you know, I'm not sure passion is necessarily tied to a single education. But there's a lot of characteristics to make good product managers that aren't necessarily tied to, you know, technical skills at all, which leads me to my final question as a product leader. What's three words to describe yourself? You know, I, 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 it's not three words. I'm going to use two. I would say endlessly curious, right? Like I really do. I just have this appetite for kind of wanting to know how things work or why things are, right? And I love, you know, I have some, some introverted tendencies, right? Like my favorite time is when I'm sitting at my computer kind of like giving some real hard thought to something and kind of documenting stuff and getting kind of, you know, a vision of where things are going to go down on paper. But I equally love like being in environments where you get to watch people doing things and thinking about like, why are they doing it that way, right? What if you did it this way? And so to me, it's just, I would say, you know, endlessly curious. Like I just, I love to learn and keep pushing myself to learn. And so, you know, if I find that I'm starting to stagnate in learning, I love product because it's a great opportunity. You know, it covers so much space across so many different industries. Like there's no point in staying somewhere where you're not learning. If you've got a product background, there's always opportunities that are out there. Well, thanks, Matt. This has been yeah, great. Yeah, thanks. I, it's always good to catch up and love the podcast. And, uh, you know, we'll look forward to seeing this one out there. And I uh, can't wait to see uh, future guests. So thanks a lot.